This morning's reading is taken from Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 19, verse 20. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt, uh, if we've not met. And um, let me just say again, uh, on, on one of those notices, the, uh, if you haven't quite clocked it, at the end of April 27th, the, um, a morning on marriage for those who are married really is uh, an excellent thing. Kerry and I always used to do these once a year, sort of lead them. We always found it profoundly uh, helpful for ourselves. Um, so if you're married, just, just a morning, you don't have to give up the whole day, it would do you much good. In fact, my wife bought a card uh, just the other day. It said, uh, marriage to you is a walk in the park, Jurassic Park. 
27th of April, my love. That's when um, the marriage morning is. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at this uh, strange story together. Our great God and Father, there are many things in this world, in this life, that we find curious and would want to know more of, but we thank you that you tell us what we need. Father, your word does not leave us short. It thoroughly equips us for every good work. So would we understand this narrative rightly? And through it, would you speak to us, we ask, to shape us more into the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, a number of years ago, I had a friend, um, I'll change her name, call her Sarah. Uh, She had become a Christian uh, in her late teens just before uh, going up to university. It was at university I met her. Now, growing up in her family, Sarah uh, and uh, her parents, well, they self-described themselves as witches, uh, white witches. Um, So they would have said that their intention was to do good. They wanted to help people. Um, and therefore they would encounter, engage uh, with the spirit world, the supernatural, and they would cast spells, um, a bit more sophisticated than sort of Wingardium Leviosa uh, and uh, sort of Harry Potter. You know, they really thought they would harness the power of the supernatural to do good. That was the family she grew up in, her family of origin. Uh, in her late teens, she started to become somewhat disturbed, troubled, uh, unsettled by this, uh, a number of again, did a number of things made her think this is not this is not good this is not right, uh, and a friend from school took her to church and she became a Christian. So I met her about twenty years old, and um, she'd been a Christian for a few years. Still, at that time, she had particularly bad dreams. I mean, really vivid nightmares of being assailed by spirits and uh, that would leave her physically shaking, emotionally greatly disturbed. What would your counsel be to her? What would you say? Happily, she uh, was able to talk to far more mature biblically literate people than uh, her friends, such as me. And in essence, she was counseled to, well, to trust in the promises of the Bible and pray. That's what she did. Nothing more dramatic. Just trusted in the promises of Scripture and prayed. And over time, these things just drifted away, faded away, and she would say, not for 20 years, as she had anything like this sort of vivid uh, assailment um, in her dreams, in her nightmares. Does that freak you out? I don't know what you make of chapter 19 and these seven sons of Sceva trying to cast out a demon, getting beaten up and running out of the house naked and bleeding. I mean, it's enough to stop you trying it yourself, I guess. But, but does it freak you out? Particularly in our materialist West, the sort of supernatural box. We're a little... Even so, there are, there are encounters when um, even a secular world and a secular press doesn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, you read the story, it was a couple of years ago now, the Royal Hospital in Derby. The chief executive called in an exorcist. 
into uh, the hospital because there had been dozens and dozens of sightings of this ghost of a Roman soldier, and the staff were freaked out. And you might think, well, silly people. No, no, not silly people. Highly educated people. The consultants were saying, you've got to get something in. You've got to deal with this, because there's an issue here. And the hospital had been built upon an old Roman burial site, and so there's this centurion marching up and down with his spear in the corridors, apparently. Now, again, what do you make of that? But there are points when even a deeply skeptical Western mindset, a medical establishment says, look, there's just there's something here, I don't know, we don't know. This is, this is outside of our box. Can you help? Help. To which, of course, the Scriptures would say, don't be surprised. And I think this passage here in Acts 18, 19 helps us. Helps us get the sort of supernatural or, or the spiritual world, the unseen world, in the right perspective. And it would say to us, Look, don't deny it exists, but don't get overexcited by it either. In one sense, just do what the Apostle Paul did. Just keep teaching, believing the Word of God. Don't deny it. Don't get overexcited. You just keep praying and teaching the Word of the Lord, which is what we see here. Now, this is our last look at the book of Acts uh, this year. We come to an end of another section. We'll pick it up again in the next academic year. But in this section of chapter 16, verse 5 to 19, verse 20, we get to the end of it today and you get one of Luke's familiar markers of growth. It's always either the church grew or the word of the Lord grew. And there you see it right at the end of our reading this morning, chapter 19, verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That's how Paul, excuse me, Luke wants to leave us at the end of this section. These are markers of growth. They're Luke's chapters, the, the numbers, the verses. We've added them later. But that's hit the end of this section. He said, what I want you to get in chapter 16, verse 5 to 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord has grown. What has happened in the narrative is that the gospel has entered into Europe, and we've been um, following it through in the last few weeks over these wonderful holiday destinations of uh, Ephesus, um, Athens and, and uh, Corinth and uh, Philippi, etc., uh, where you can go with your drachmas no more, or your euros on your summer holidays. And, um, but the drumbeat in the background is the word of the Lord. Whatever obstacles it's faced, the same thing has happened. Paul's method has been remarkably similar. He has been reasoning, persuading, and proving that the word of the Lord is true. So if you just flick back those references there, chapter 17, verse 3, there in Thessalonica, what does Paul do? Well, he goes to the synagogue, and um, every, uh, every day that he's there, chapter 17, verse 3, he explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. So from the scriptures, he's explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and some of the Jews were persuaded. That's just what he does. Um, just to flick it on in uh, another example, chapter 18, verse 4, in Corinth, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue. He tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. In our reading today, chapter 19, verse 8, it, um, it is like actually the same identical words, but they're translated slightly differently. Chapter 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, 
arguing persuasively. Well, literally, it's reasoning and persuading. Same words. So just wherever he goes, this is what Paul does. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, the the sort of obstacle that he encounters is quite different. So uh, in Thessalonica, it's religious jealousy. In Athens, it's rational skepticism. In Corinth, it's sort of political maneuvering. Uh, Here in Ephesus, in the face, it's, it's supernatural opposition. But in one sense, it doesn't matter if he's in the intellectual center of, of, of Athens, a sort of political problem, or, or here facing supernatural opposition. But he just does the same thing all the time. Okay? He opens the scriptures and says, let me show you Jesus from the Bible. Let me reason with you, persuade you, proclaim that to you. I don't care what's in front of me. I'm just going to do the same thing. Is somewhat his method here. And really, in this last section then, even though it's a bit different, it's not a rational persuasion. We are probably culturally more like Athens than Ephesus. But we can still learn that even in this scenario, you have confidence in the word of God. Paul just keeps teaching it, reasoning, persuading. That's what he does. So even if you're in Ephesus the magical capital of the world as it was in those days, you still have confidence in the word of God. You trust the promises of the scriptures and you pray. That's what you do. Let's uh, work through it then. Uh, uh, we're taking a slightly longer section, well, it's partly because it's where we got to last time, but also I think it helps get the, uh, uh, the, the flow of the, what Luke wants us to get. So we'll look at believing Apollos, unbelieving Ephesians, and then superstitious pagans. All three of them needed the word of the Lord. Okay, so these three little incidents. There's believing Apollos, unbelieving Ephesians, superstitious pagans, but all three of them needed the word of the Lord. First at Apollos, briefly, in uh, chapter 18, verse 24 to 28. Now notice, Apollos, loads of positive things said about him. 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so very learned, because Alexandria, the sort of, uh, the, 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 the library of Alexandria, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, he came to Ephesus. What do we learn? All positive things. He's a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately. All wonderful things. Just one little thing about him. He knew only the baptism of John. It's a funny contrast. He spoke about Jesus accurately, but he only knew the baptism of John. I think the point must be, given what's here, um, he's clearly a believer. He speaks boldly in the synagogue. That is, in Acts, a mark of having the Spirit dwell within you, actually, that you speak boldly. Whenever the Spirit descends in Acts, bold speech, that's the sort of connection that Acts makes. And yet he wasn't able to articulate the work of God's Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had said, look, I I just baptize with water. I get you wet. When Jesus comes, he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is, God himself will come and dwell within you. Extraordinary. Not a physical sensation, not in utero, but he will come and dwell within you. That is, he will place his seal upon you. He will say, I, I, I'm, you're mine now. You belong to me. I have 
taken hold of you and I will hold you all the way to heaven. Now John is a, excuse me, Apollos here, he is a believer, but he couldn't really articulate that work. He hadn't understood it particularly well. So uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, our heroes from uh, last week, if you were here, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Well, they're very wise. They say, oh, he's a good guy. He's got one or two things wrong. Let's not contradict him in public. That'll annoy him and be a bit awkward. Let's just do it privately, and um, that way it'll go much better. And what do they do? They explain to him more adequately. I don't know why they've translated it differently. It is precisely the same word as verse 25. Apollos taught about Jesus accurately, and then Priscilla and Aquila explained the word of God more accurately. So he was there, he just needed a bit more, is the point. And the outcome is verse 28. He uh, travels back to Corinth, the capital of Achaia, and um, is of enormous benefit to the believers in the city of Corinth. And you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's clearly had a big impact there. So because he's now able, better able to handle the scriptures, he's a great encouragement to the church. Okay. In one sense, an unremarkable account, you'd say. But believing Apollos, and he is a believer, he just needed the word of the Lord. He just needed more teaching to be more accurate so he could help others. Okay. Fairly straightforward. Gets a little more complicated with the next group. Unbelieving Ephesians, well, they needed the word of the Lord. So now we are in Ephesus. Chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So he's uh, crossed back over the, uh, the sea and uh, now in uh, modern-day Turkey again. Ephesus. Of Asia, it's the Roman capital. It's the bank. Ephesus, it's the fourth largest city, just by numbers, in the Roman Empire. It's a big deal, Ephesus. It influences the whole region of uh, uh, Asia. Very wealthy, very affluent city. Uh, it's got street lamps, amazing, uh, back in the first century. One of only three cities in the world to have street lamps. I mean, it's sort of flash with its cash. But it's, crucially, it's known as the magic center of the world. In a culture which readily and fully believed in the supernatural, Ephesus is viewed as, that is the Glastonbury, if you will, of, um, uh, of the world. I mean, Glastonbury probably in the UK being the, sort of the easiest place to pick up crystals and all sorts of uh, uh, things. But um, it's the center. That's where you go if you want potions or, or curses or things. You go to Ephesus. That's where Paul is now gone. Now, the first people that Paul meets then, um, they're some disciples of John the Baptist, and Paul asks them, you'd have to say, a very strange question. Verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's a very strange question, because you read any of Paul's letters, and he says, you don't become a believer apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you inevitably have the Holy Spirit. So this is a very strange question for him to ask. He's obviously thought, there's something, you guys, there's something not quite right here. So what do they answer? Verse 2, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, well, that's quite revealing. 
Second question, verse 3. So, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Oh. They don't even mention Jesus. They don't seem to have heard of Jesus. And so Paul, excuse me, um, Paul here then says, well, okay, let me explain more readily. Verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. Oh, they say, verse 5, on hearing this, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Apollos didn't need a baptism. He was already a believer. He knew the way of Jesus, could teach the way of Jesus fairly accurately. He just needed more Bible teaching. These guys, Jesus, okay, John was talking about Jesus. Oh, so it's Jesus we need to believe in. Yes. All right, we better have a baptism then. Yes. So they're baptized as believers. And uh, what happens? Well, uh, so Pentecost catches up with them. So they have the same experience as Acts chapter 2, verse 6. Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. That is, they speak in different languages, just as in Acts 2. People are going, hey, who are these fishermen that are speaking all different languages from around the world? Uh, And they prophesy. That is, in Acts 2, they declare the wonders of the Lord. They say, ah, what Jesus has done is amazing. So they're caught up in the Pentecost experience, as it will. Now, let me just briefly on this, a negative and a positive. Negatively, don't expect to see this or have this experience. This is how you share the gospel with people who know about John the Baptist but have never heard about Jesus. I think these days that's going to be zero. Okay? This is a sort of small window in salvation history. You're not just not going to find people like that. So once I just don't expect this. They're not Christians. They're told about Jesus. They become Christians. That's what's taking place here. Positively, what do you learn? Well, what does Paul do after this encounter? Does what he always does. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, persuading and reasoning with them. That's what he always does. In Acts, to teach the kingdom of God is just to explain the gospel within the framework of Old Testament promises. That's what it means to teach the kingdom of God. Well, some object, verse 9. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, whoever he is. This went on for two years so that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of them? Quite a big number. But quite probably, Ephesus is the hub. You know, it influences Asia as much as London influences the UK. People come in. And this goes on for two years. So you get examples in the rest of the New Testament. Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says, look, I've I've never met you, but you've become Christians. Great, because Epaphras came to Ephesus. He heard the message from me, and he's gone back and planted a church. Great, I've never met you. But the whole of Colossae has heard of the gospel because I've been teaching it in here in Ephesus. In fact, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you've got these seven letters to the seven churches, all in Asia, 
There's no evidence that Paul visited any of them apart from Ephesus. But these other churches all get planted because he's there teaching the word of the Lord for two years. That's what he does. Unbelieving Ephesians, they needed the word of the Lord. Let's go to the third uh, little encounter then, and we'll spend more time here in verses 11 to 20. Superstitious pagans. Superstitious pagans needed the word of the Lord. Now, what do we do with 11 and 12? Uh, Chapter 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, do notice Luke describes these as extraordinary. It's not just miracles, and in the, particularly in the first half of the book of Acts, there are lots of miracles, but Luke says, look, well, this was extraordinary, what went on here. But notice again what Paul doesn't do. It's not that Paul arrives in town, sets up a tent, and puts up a banner, come to me for miracles, healings, deliverance. Doesn't do any of that. What seems to happen is his hankies and uh, his aprons, and where he's working with leather, they get stolen perhaps or just get taken away. He doesn't advertise. He doesn't say, excuse me, 500 quid. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, look, I've snotted in my hanky now. That's worth more than it was uh, as a clean one. He doesn't do that. Sorry. Um, He doesn't say that. doesn't do that. What does Paul do here? He doesn't do anything. God, we're told, did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It seems that he's pretty passive in this. People take his handkerchiefs and take his aprons and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Paul is pretty passive in the process. And then you get this incident with um, uh, uh, the Jewish exorcists, verse 13. Now some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, I think this group is probably well-intentioned. We've been working our way through Acts about months ago. Uh, chapter 8, Simon Magus, he sort of wanted, he saw uh, uh, Peter and saying, oh, excellent, you, you've got power. Can I, have, can I pay you? Can I get my wallet out and, and pay you to have the same sort of power you have? He, he's a charlatan, and, uh, and Peter says, no, that's wicked. The, uh, these guys seem well-motivated, Perhaps they're the white witches of of the first century. They they, they want to help. But again, they have no relationship with Jesus. There's a distinction. Luke, in his narrative, talks about the Lord Jesus. So verse 13, these people try to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, people were... uh, the, The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. But these exorcists. They've heard the name, but they don't have a relationship. So verse 13, they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. 
they don't say Lord Jesus. They have no relationship with him. But in, in Jesus' name, the, 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 Paul uses the name. Culturally, if you knew the name of a god, you had power over that god. You could sort of lasso the god and, and drag him to do your will. You might lasso a horse and, 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 and ride the horse. If you knew the name of a god, you could sort of lasso him and uh, get him to do your bidding. And that's what they thought they were doing. But there's no relationship. Call him Jesus, same way the demon, verse 15, calls him Jesus. But one day, of course, this goes horribly wrong. Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest. Bit of a blurring here of sort of Jewish faith and folk animistic spiritism. They were doing this one day, and verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Well, deeply humiliating, or in fact, very scary. And so verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed, that is, they'd become Christians, now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. Now here is sincere repentance, it looks like. So these people become believers and they say, look, we've been involved in this spiritual world, this occult activity, and we see we really shouldn't have done that. We're not just going to stop and flog our spell books to get some money. We're going to burn them to say that that's wrong. We don't want anyone engaged in that. 50,000 drachmas. Uh, drachmas are daily wage. Um, so what is that? Well, if you take the, the UK national, a uh, UK average salary, you're talking something like five million pounds, perhaps. Just goes up in smoke that day. Maybe more but certainly that amount of money just burnt. Well, that's a lot of money. But they're saying, we don't want anyone to do this anymore. Again, here's Luke's summary at the end of it. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And you might say, well, what's any of that? This encounter, seven sons of Sceva and the demon and the burning. Where is the word of the Lord in that? Well, again, you ask, this incident, verses 13 to 19, what does Paul do? Nothing. He's not in it. What do Christian believers do in the incident between the demon and the sons of Sceva? Nothing. They're not in it. See, I read a few things, uh, and um, a number of people like to describe this as a power encounter. Here is a power encounter. Sounds quite good, doesn't it? You know, how, how was your Sunday? Well, we went along to church, and we had a power encounter, and, and we won. I mean, that sounds impressive. I, I mean, you just have to say it in that sort of voice. Um, but there's, I don't know why that people describe it that. In what sense is it a power encounter? Paul does not engage in spiritual warfare. 
He didn't do anything. You'd say, I guess, that God himself, the Lord Jesus, is involved here in spiritual warfare. He doesn't allow his name to be misused. But the striking thing in this whole incident, the extraordinary miracles of 11 to 12, this bizarre incident in verses 13 to 19, Paul does nothing. His only contribution, well, he's in the lecture hall, just teaches the word of the Lord. And so Luke's summary at the whole of the end of this episode, the word of the Lord grew. God does the miracles without being asked. Paul teaches the word of the Lord. And the chief bulwark, the chief antidote against superstition is faith. And true faith comes from believing the word of God. You don't need anything else. And so at the end of this incident, you have to say one source of opposition to Christianity will be the supernatural word, excuse me, supernatural world. And for us, don't deny that, but don't become obsessed by it. I think is what you're meant to take away at the end of this passage. Yeah, there's a supernatural world. And in some places, very strong pronounce. You don't deny it, but don't be obsessed by it. Paul was not. He just taught the word of God. That's what he does. Let me say uh, three things, uh, or in one sense, to, to three different groups, uh, perhaps here this morning. Uh, the first is this. If you're bewildered by the supernatural, I'd say don't be naive. If you're just bewildered and say, whoa, what is all this twaddle? Just don't be naive. In a city which is famous as the center of magic, in a culture which believes in the supernatural and actively seeks to engage in it all the time, in Ephesus, I think it is no wonder there is a heightened level of supernatural activity. If only those who've become Christians burn their spell books and it's five million quid's worth, goodness knows how many millions pounds of, of money is being spent on spell books by those who don't become Christians. In that sort of culture, when people are trying to lasso God some place curses, and we well, don't be surprised that there's a heightened supernatural activity. And in some places in the world today, plenty of that. So don't be surprised. In this long section, chapter 16, verse 5 to 19, 20, Christianity has been opposed by rational skepticism, by religious jealousy, by political maneuvering, finally here by the supernatural. It's opposed by all sorts of things. But you read this and you have to say, Jesus is not a philosophical concept. And Christianity is not just a worldview. Jesus is the ruler over the whole universe, what is seen and what is unseen. And it is no surprise that when Paul writes back to the church at Ephesus in the letter of Ephesians, he makes plenty of reference to them, that Jesus Christ is seated above all power and authority, heavenly powers and authorities, and the Christians belong with him. And there is spiritual warfare, which in Ephesians 6 is to put on the armor of God. It's just to trust 
what Jesus has done for you. Trust that you are righteous. Trust that you do have salvation. But don't be naive. There is a world which we cannot see. Don't deny it. Don't be obsessed with it. Don't be fascinated. But don't be naive. Okay? Second, look, if you have a history with the occult, don't fear. A smaller group amongst us, probably. But if you have a history with the occult, don't fear. Because Jesus is Lord over all demons and supernatural powers. And if Jesus is Lord of your life, that is, you're a Christian. And if he dwells within you by his spirit, he owns you. And no evil power can. It's silly twaddle to say a Christian can be possessed. No, 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 no. A Christian is owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't fear. My friend Sarah, yeah, well, for 17 and a half years, she'd been a white witch. She'd practiced occult. So no great surprise that even after she'd become a Christian, she was attacked, had vivid dreams, couldn't be taken over, couldn't be possessed. Not, no, no, no. But no great surprise that it left a legacy in her life. If a man is an alcoholic and becomes a Christian, it'll take a while to wean himself off drink. Well, you know, if you go for the hard stop, I'm never going to do it again. The, the, the cravings come for quite a while. If a woman becomes a Christian all her life, she's just let her anger rage. There's just never been self-control. Well, the day she becomes a Christian, it's not going to stop day one. It'll be a process of growing in self-control and less anger. You know, anything we take into the Christian life, it leaves a legacy but over time we become more like Jesus and the temptation to drink goes, it fades and the temptation to anger fades and an attack by any supernatural forces, they fade. You would expect that, I think. But if you've got any sort of history with the occult, don't fear. Satan works off fear. You belong to Jesus. Bewildered, if you've got a history. Third little group, and I think this is most of us. For most of us, don't drift towards being fascinated. I think is one thing to take away from this. Don't drift towards being fascinated with the supernatural. As I say, I think you are far more likely to see these sorts of incidents in some cultures than others. Years ago, as I traveled through southern Morocco, um, which is a sort of well, technically Sufi Islam. It's folk religion. It's animism. And particularly in the south of the country, no one is really a, a strict Muslim. But culturally, as you walk down the high street of any town, well, high street's a bit strong, but you know, the shops in any town, you buy amulets to ward off curses. And they'll say, look, if you want a curse on someone else, go and see her at number 13. It's just endemic in the culture. People are placing curses, warding off curses. Therefore, there is a sort of more obvious presence of the supernatural. Now, when you get right into the south of the country, the sort of Atlas Mountains, the sort of, uh, uh, it's quite a poor environment. Materialism doesn't dominate their waking thoughts in a way it does in the West. But the supernatural does. And just in different parts of the world, this is going to be a more common phenomenon. Now, I have to say, on my travels at that, in those times, there are things I saw I have no, I just can't explain. 
people placing curses and all sorts of things going on in front of you, you think, I don't know what's going on there. I can't rationally explain it. But, but Acts 19 would say you don't need to. You don't need to become a, a, an expert in resisting territorial spirits. You don't need to. You read the word of God, you trust its promises, and you pray. And your faith is strengthened. And that's what you need to do. It would be perverse if we read a passage such as this and thought, ah, oh, what we need, we need to spend more time in seminars on how to encounter the demonic or uh, what this church needs really at the moment is a, a weekend on how to get your hankies to do miracles to make money. That would be, uh, that would be enormously well spent. That would be a perverse reading of this. That is the opposite of what Luke wants us to do. Because Paul doesn't do that. Luke says, just copy what Paul did wherever he went. He just taught the word of God. He reasoned, he persuaded, he explained wherever he went. And the outcome is chapter 19, verse 20. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There is, in some forms of Christianity in the UK, I think a, a danger that you just get a little overexcited by supernatural experience. I think, well, that would be wildly exciting to have these things happen in front of us. Well, I'm not sure being beaten up and having to run down the street naked is that sort of exciting. I can do without that sort of uh, excitement in my own life personally. But the truth is, if you pursue that too far, the sort of, you know, we must have the sort of supernatural experiences. That's paganism. You don't want to be in a situation like these guys in Ephesus, terrified. You're not meant to be. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same. God says, don't engage. Don't engage in this spiritual spiritism, animism, occult, whatever you want to call it. Just don't go, just don't engage with it. But rather, teach the word of God, read the word of God, reason, persuade. Fill yourselves with the promises of the word of God. Know that you belong to Jesus Christ. He protects you. He holds you. So pray and trust the promises of the Word of God because it overcomes all sorts of issues. That's been Paul's tool for everything in this section. Pray, just keep reading, believing, teaching the Word of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we say again, thank you that you give us all that we need. There is a part of us, Father, that would like a, perhaps something to manifest, something dramatic, something exciting. But you warn us in the scriptures to steer clear of such things. And you tell us to trust your promises. Father, we thank you that in the scriptures we have 
all that we need for life and salvation. We have the certainty that Jesus Christ rules over all and we belong to him and therefore we cannot be taken over in any sense. We do not need to fear the unseen world that we cannot see because we can trust you. We thank you for the certainties of your word and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. One other thing I did think I mentioned, um, if, you, if this is sort of a, more of an issue for you than, um, uh, than just sort of intrigue, uh, this is, I think, is the best book, uh, most sensible book written uh, by uh, Sharon Beekman and Peter Bolt. She was converted out of an occult background. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar. Uh, Silencing Satan, I think, is uh, very sensible, realistic, all sorts of case studies of... Um, supernatural events, but, but dealt with very well biblically. I think it's a very sane book.